Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Avery Frank, David Stokes, and Elias Chappellis from the Show Me Institute. So, David, one of the things we talk about here a lot is municipal policy. You're the director of it here, and along with that is local tax policy. So, one of our, I guess, well, Detroit is our neighbor to the north. We're going to declare it here. They're trying a policy that you've, uh, I guess, supported in years past. It's an experiment that they're talking about implementing so what are they doing and what do you think of it well they're right they're trying to try a policy they're trying to get it through the michigan legislature to allow detroit to move towards a land tax system what is a land tax system nothing more than a property tax based primarily on the value of the land not the buildings or homes or whatever that's on the land so you would there's there's of course a variety of ways to do it you could in purest sense tax only the land more likely what detroit will do is some type of two-tiered structure where the the tax on the land will be increased dramatically and the tax on the home or commercial building or whatever will be decreased substantially uh, we've been very interested in land taxes at show me institute since the start of this organization our first paper in 2005 was how an earnings tax harms st louis and kansas city by professor joe Haslig at mizzou and he followed that up a year or so later with papers on how to replace the earnings tax in St. Louis and Kansas City. And those papers advocated adoption of land taxation in a, in Missouri, or in St. Louis and Kansas City. Now, it's not strictly legal, and I'll get back to that in a second. So it would involve changing the Missouri uh, Constitution, or at least statutes, just the same as they're doing in Michigan. But the theory behind a land tax is several-fold. One is that it really incentivizes development because if you're paying a large property tax for your land and then you build more onto it, you develop it further, you're not penalized with higher taxes. Or in the case of a two-tiered system, you're only penalized with very slightly higher taxes when you've built more onto it as opposed to the current system under property taxes where the building of the house is much more valuable than the land and subject to most of the taxes. There's also land taxes are very popular among economists. They're famous from Henry George who who first wrote about them and proposed them in the 1800s. Milton Friedman and many other free market economists are strong supporters of them. Land isn't mobile. So that's one of the strongest reasons for it. The, the supply of land is fixed. So tax it and then encourage development by not taxing, or in the case of a two-tiered system, dramatically reducing the taxes of development on that land. And Detroit is such a large city with so many problems, so much vacant land. I've been to Detroit. I've taken sort of tours of Detroit from that perspective. Uh, it's depressing. And St. Louis is similar in many, many ways there. So the idea in Detroit is that they're really going to incentivize people who own that oftentimes vacant or very decre vacant land or decrepit houses, own it. They're going to raise those taxes on the land. But then if you build a new house, move in, build a commercial building, you're not hit with much. And it's really an interesting idea for Detroit. Uh, Pennsylvania did it back in the 80s. Several towns in Pennsylvania, including Pittsburgh, tried it. But while it's smart economics, it's not politically popular. It doesn't take a PhD to realize that farmers are opposed to the idea of land taxes. And farmers have a lot of influence in many states. Uh, there's other issues with it. There's other political issues with it as well. But it worked in Pittsburgh for the time that they had it. There's strong evidence that it was it was incentivizing development and growth in the Pittsburgh area. And Joe Haslick talks about that 
in his papers. Kansas City, here's why I say it's not a, a normal reading of our laws would say land taxes are illegal in Missouri, but Kansas City actually had one for decades. Uh, it was a small one, perhaps it sort of snuck under the radar, but they used land taxes to fund the boulevard and parkway system in Kansas City for a number of years to partially fund it. And around 10 years ago, they had a revenue commission that they're very proud of, but I think did a terrible job. And they stacked it with insiders and, you know, the same old people you would stack any commission with. And they voted to get rid of the land tax, which I would maintain they didn't really understand. And that was a terrible mistake. Uh, they didn't legally get rid of it. They just set the rate to zero. So as part of any proposal to phase out earnings taxes in Kansas City, were that to ever happen, the easiest step to do would be to start by raising that land tax back. Anyway, I'm going on too long, but it's a fascinating subject. I hope it works in Detroit. I hope they do it. I hope it works. And then I would love to see it come to St. Louis and Kansas City as well. Where did the tour of Detroit rank in the Stokes family vacation hierarchy? Are the kids clamoring for uh, a return trip? It was, it was not a family trip. It was actually a Show Me Institute policy trip, where uh, not the annual convention, but sort of a, a policy or a municipal policy-oriented one that I went up to probably about seven, eight years ago. It was, a, it, was a very, it was a great trip. It was very interesting. So it wasn't like the scene in Vacation? Windows up, kids. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not. Um, we, so, can't, oh, right, we can't close our eyes to the plight of the cities. I was just going to say, I think I think you can take from David's discussion that that his kids rank Detroit very low on their list of uh, vacation. Uh, well, maybe you can take them to a Lions game or something. I would love to take my children to a Lions game, as I believe is widely known among our fan base. I'm a dedicated Detroit Lions fan. I've never taken the kids to, to Detroit, but I would, I would love to, and I'd love to get them to a Lions game. All right, so you mentioned that uh, the proponents of this land tax say that it will increase development, and maybe it's the same answer, but they also say that it will reduce speculation. Um, can you say a little bit more about what they mean when they say land tax reduces speculation? Well, it becomes it simply becomes more expensive to speculate because if you're going to buy vacant property and sit on it, it's going to be more expensive to do that. I mean, you're going to be paying substantially higher taxes for that for that vacant property. So you have more of an incentive to develop it faster and less of an or to sell it to somebody who else wants to develop it as opposed to say sitting on it right now. You can you can sit on vacant property in the city of St. Louis for a long long time because the taxes on a vacant Vacant lot in St. Louis are incredibly low, so you can sit on it for decades until some big new development comes by and, and you, you win the, the jackpot. They want to make the price of that speculation higher to incentivize people to develop it or sell it to other people who will faster, and I think it's a very legitimate way to go about that. Sure. So, And currently, as we'll talk about in our, our next topic, um, in St. Louis, if you want to buy an entire street, a block, a couple blocks and wait. And maybe it'll be parking lots. Maybe it'll be a car wash. Maybe it'll be a hotel. You just don't know, but you can kind of buy it for a low, low price and sit on it for years and years and years. And this would hopefully incentivize people not to do that. Hopefully it would incentivize people to develop it faster. I don't want to make speculation illegal and there's, this wouldn't do that. It simply increases the cost of it. It also probably makes it less likely to see too many downtown uh parking lots or you're not going to see just those little areas around bush stadium that you know it, it's worthwhile for the owner to keep that and not really develop anything on it but 
you know, really in those urban areas, you would probably like to see more development or at least cities would, I think. Elias raises a great point that we've, we've discussed before. Yeah, it, you drive around downtown St. Louis or downtown Kansas City, there's a tremendous amount of just parking lots. And I don't have anything against cars, and I don't have anything against parking, but I'd like to see more parking garages in our downtown areas and fewer parking lots. And this is exactly the type of the tax system that would help incentivize that. And that would be a wonderful thing. And so one more thing before we move on, you mentioned this would have to come through a change to through the Constitution, through Missouri's Constitution, and the challenge of rural Missourians, farmers. Um, is that something that you think has prevented this from being applied in other places across the country, the the people in more rural areas voting against it? I don't know what's what's prevented it, per se. Again, it's they tried it. They've had it in Pennsylvania and largely gotten rid of it because it's – and I look – Trying to trying to conflate good policy with good politics is very 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 difficult, and I think people, you know, you get to this idea that you're going to anytime you hear we're going to dramatically reduce the increase the taxes on your land, but if you develop it, you'll benefit from it. You know, plenty of people are going to hear what I'm. What if I don't want to develop it? What if I I'm happy as it is? You're going to increase my land tax. They might not see that benefit in the future, and they think of it about themselves and don't think about the incentive for growth that comes with it, which is perhaps why a city like Detroit, which has hit hit bottom by any standard and is turning it around slowly but surely, perhaps that's the perfect place to try something out because people are. I mean, I don't think it's erroneous or insulting to say that they're sort of desperate for something to change the incentive structure in Detroit, and I don't think St. Louis is all that far behind. So I'd love to see it in both places. I'd love to see it in Kansas City, too. More likely in Kansas City, I'd like to see them go back to it, because they had it, and then expand it further. And Elias, um, St. Louisans will be familiar with one area that has been tried to be developed and redeveloped for decades at this point, and that's North St. Louis. And right now, they're is a push to subsidize through various programs, different businesses and housing, which is the piece that you want to focus on today in one St. Louis, uh, North St. Louis neighborhood. So what's going on there? Sure. So there's this uh, apartment complex in North St. Louis called uh, the Hill Hillvale Apartments. And this is a area that has been, you know, developed and, you know, run down and then redeveloped again. And there's a new or new ish, um, effort going on there now. So there's a new company came in. I want to say they're from Denver and they're, they committed to putting in $30 million into this um, apartment complex, redo the whole place, you know, provide social workers, all types of stuff that, you know, with affordable housing, it seems like a good pitch, but you know, with all of these, um, especially these national groups that come in and try to do affordable housing, they come in with a few asks. And so that was, they came in and they wanted, um, low-income housing tax credits. They wanted tax-exempt bonds. They got tax abatements from the city. They got uh, affordable um, housing trust fund funds. So they, they said this is a $30 million project. In return, the government gave them about $40 million in tax incentives, and they've started. And now the, this recent article in the Post-Dispatch just kind of highlighted how you know wrongheaded these approaches have been, where you're just throwing so much money at this project. They've already started rehabbing it. Um, the pictures in the article make it seem as though they're not necessarily doing a very good job. The people there aren't very happy with it. 
and it just really looks like it's setting off these alarm bells that it's following in the footsteps of many other you know troubled projects like this in, in the past um when you look at specifically the low-income housing tax credit that's something that you know i've talked about a lot in the problems that it brings about because it's essentially a way for developers to come in and um, fundraise for their um, projects. So these are typically private um, you know, companies, private developers coming in. They get a ton of money from uh, taxpayers, federal taxpayers and state taxpayers. And what happens when they develop these um, you know, apartment complexes typically is that the owners are going to just do the minimum possible to comply with um, the you know, federal and state requirements to receive these tax credits. They get them over 10 years after they build it. They're supposed to comply with these various rules for 15 to 30 years. Technically, it's 30 years, but the tax credits can't be taken back after 15. And so what you see is essentially by the 15-year mark, uh, these apartment complexes are not in good shape. They're looking for help. The people that um, you know live there don't really want to live there anymore because they haven't been maintained. And really, the way that the system is set up, you're picking winners and losers in terms of, you know, who is being awarded all these funds. You're then building apartment complexes that, um, you know, aren't in the case of low-income housing tax credits, aren't necessarily that affordable, and they are very low-quality housing um, establishments, essentially because of the incentive structures that are built by the government funding them. And it looks like that's what we're seeing in um, North City. And with all of the COVID funds that are available to the city right now, um, I think the article cited something about $300 million-ish that are going to be invested in revitalizing North City. Um, This is really a... This is kind of a warning of, you know, this strategy needs to change because you're going to keep having these situations where, um, you know, you're not actually achieving the change that they say they want. And um, hopefully, hopefully the strategy can change soon. Well, and in the Post-Dispatch article, it becomes clear that one one of the root causes why development hasn't worked uh, in these areas is that, and these are the the residents themselves, the people who live there. Um, one of them talks about one of the the projects across the street. There's a gas station that's called uh, that's known as Murder Mobile, and so I think we see it time and time again in the St. Louis area, Kansas City area, uh, and cities across the country. That if public safety isn't improving, public safety isn't made a priority before you start dumping in tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in development subsidies, that it's just not going to work out. And with these, you know, with these development subsidies, there's really just this wrongheaded view that, you know, you should just pick this area and the money should go just right to this specific, you know, address. Um, For some reason, these Hillvale apartments have been an area that St. Louis has decided that they need to keep, you know, investing in. But, you know, if you think about it, if there is this you know, very unsafe gas station, there's probably a reason that, you know, other businesses and stuff aren't moving there. And really, if you could instead focus the funds on, you know, making it safer, making it a better place for development to happen in the region, as opposed to focusing on one specific address, I think you'd have a much more successful um, approach at, you know, making it a nicer place to live, cheaper housing and all the sort. And it doesn't seem like that that should necessarily be it isn't the job of a developer who's gotten a tax credit to build housing or build a hotel or whatever to be concerned about maintaining safety in the area. That's that's the job of the government. 
Yeah, and they really don't. I mean, you know, the, they may make some promises whenever they come in. Uh, but, I mean, story after story tells you that, you know, after, after too long of, um, you know, these developments being finished, people have a very hard time, you know, contacting the property manager, um, you know, getting stuff fixed. But, um, you know, really, as soon as you start a development and then there's some sort of, you know, something happens public safety related, you know, there's a crime of some sort close, you know, really things kind of go off the rails there in terms of, you know, just the future of how, how much maintenance is being done, um, how much access people are getting to, you know, the, um, you know, their landlords or the property managers and stuff. And so I, I think you see, especially with these national companies that are coming in and, uh, you know, doing these developments, I definitely think you sort of see a, um, them take a step back whenever they, um, whenever those additional responsibilities are kind of pushed on them that they didn't necessarily want to do in the first place. So it sounds like at this point in the project, you don't see anything that would make you think that this is going to be different from the other attempts to uh, develop those areas. Uh, definitely not. I mean, the the article basically showed some areas where it looks like they were, you know, cutting some corners in terms of, they're already cutting some corners in terms of the apartments that they are, um, remodeling currently. So it, it, it appears to be a project that they are, you know, working on while some people still live there. So they're finishing some units, moving people in, kind of keeping everything going, which is generally good, but it looks like as happens with all of these, um, you know, highly subsidized, um, developments is that the developers really are just trying to meet the minimum standards, uh, at the cheapest way possible, which is essentially the, you know, the incentive structure that the government has set up whenever they provide these. And so, I, without a complete change in how, you know, St. Louis or other areas that are looking at giving out these subsidies, you know, they, until they change their strategy, I don't expect, you know, the private developers to change anything either. And how much of this, and David, feel free to jump in here too. How much of this do you think is a direct result of the, some, some COVID money still coming in? And also St. Louis is still trying to figure out how to spend the Rams money. So are we seeing uh, some moonshots taken here because of the, the cash that the city might be sitting on? There, there's definitely some of that with, you know, trying to revitalize the area, especially around the Hillvale apartments. I think uh, Tashara Jones has mentioned to the effect of, you know, revitalizing the area. Um, I don't think the Hillvale apartments specifically have much to do with the COVID funds just because low-income housing tax credits, those, you know, Missouri gives out about $20 million of those every year regardless. And um, I don't know if the city is planning on abating additional property taxes just to sort of go along with all the other, you know, hundreds of millions of COVID funds and other funds that could be going to North City. That's not to say that I don't think it's a good idea to, you know, try to get, you know, um, development in North City. I just think St. Louis is taking the wrong approach. And I mean, there, there could be some brownfield remediation. I think the article does mention up there. I do think there are some areas that could use some help, but until they change course, I think we're going to keep seeing more of the same. And let's not leave out that we keep seeing more of the same in St. Louis and elsewhere, and certainly in Kansas City, because, you know, you've got this, I would call it the developer subsidy complex out there. It's the same lawyers, the same lobbyists who present to the same small commissions in St. Louis and Kansas City, you know, with the, the Land Reutilization Authority, the TIF Commission, which hasn't actually met in over a year, but... You know, they've got all the, the Port Authority. They've got all these commissions that have this 
incredible power to grant these subsidies and credits and the like. And obviously, Elias is talking about the Missouri State Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, but there's plenty of local subsidies as well. And it's the same small number of people presenting to the same people on these commissions, representing the same developers time and time again. So nobody should be shocked when they just repeat the failures because it's not like you've got – it's not like anybody really benefits from outside-of-the-box thinking or anybody is actually held to account when they lose money because they make their money from the subsidy. They make their money from the taxpayer, and everything beyond that is just gravy. All right. A lot of projects, and uh, we'll uh, keep you up to date on it. Avery, last year there was a law passed – creating something called Close the Gap Scholarships. And there's an important deadline coming up, so two questions. What's the deadline, and what are Close the Gap Scholarships? Yeah, thanks for the introduction, Zach. You know, today I'm a little I'm a little worried about talking about this because I feel like I have to be perfect today. I'm sitting next to David. You know, he's within arm's reach, so I really can't, I really can't say anything stupid today, so I'm going to try to be as good as I can. So I'm talking to all parents today, whether you're in Cape Girardeau, St. Louis, Carthage, wherever. You all have a deadline coming up Monday, October 23rd, so very soon. Don't miss out on getting up to $1,500 to cover eligible educational costs. So these costs are coming from COVID relief funds, 75 million COVID relief funds. And you can get up to $1,500. Not not everyone will get up to $1,500, but you can get up to $1,500. And it's being divvied out to first to people who are below 185% of the federal poverty line. Once all the applicants below that poverty line get theirs, then everyone above it can start getting there. So there's room for about 50,000 people to get it if they all got the maximum. And this will be a good thing for families to have to help pay for some costs. And was the idea behind this that uh, during the pandemic, we saw what's referred to as learning loss. And in Missouri, we saw quite a bit of it. So was this a program that was aimed to try and catch some kids up that missed uh, some important education during the pandemic? Yes, this was created as an educational, like emergency funds. These are one-time funds. So this program's not going to be here next year. This is a one-time thing. It was made last year to try to help these kids, you know, pay for costs and help them catch up. And it only got implemented this year because we were a little late with the program. And can you give us some better ideas of what these educational costs may be? What can you do with this money? So the first thing to know is these are for public school students only. So private school kids, homeschool kids, you're not eligible for this program. But the eligible costs are for you'll receive your funds in about November. And you can pay for things like tutoring for academic summer camps, for AP classes, computer equipment, educational materials, pay for subscriptions like Khan Academy. You can do before and after school programs. And you can even pay for stuff like piano lessons, art lessons, and the like. And it really gives you the opportunity, you know, to help cover costs, you know, that not everyone gets. So it's like you can have ACT tutoring courses. Like these are things to help students catch up that we're going to invest in education because we know how much they suffer during the online learning and the COVID and COVID. So it's like, we're going to give you some things that could help you catch up. And since it was late, you can also get reimbursement for stuff that you paid for after July 1st, 2022. So if you've been paying for art lessons the past year, you're in luck. You can say, Hey, I've been paying for this since last summer. I need, I spent a lot of money. I don't have a lot left. I'm going to get a reimbursement so you can get a reimbursement or you can pay for stuff coming up in this next year. 
and you have to spend it all by the end of this summer. So don't don't save it. Make sure to spend all the money you've got. So I, I would object to the fact that it's only eligible for public school students. And I think we would find it mm-hmm. infuriating and question whether it's – I assume it's a federal program in Missouri. Yeah. Is, I mean, the I would hope somebody would bring some type of uh, act to try to challenge that it's not eligible for – homeschoolers or, yeah, or or religious school students or private school students as well. So I understand that it's a one-time payment and the amount's smaller, $1,500, but how closely or not closely does this resemble uh, universal ESA programs? Like we're seeing in states like Arizona where the parents are given the state portion of their effort and they can spend them as they see fit on their child's education. Yeah, so you can't spend it on tuition. if It's not like a voucher program. You can't go spend it on private school tuition or you can't do things like, but this is just a one-time program, so it's not going to keep going. But you can talk to my colleague Susan Pendergrass about it because she's more of the funding formula expert. But the way Missouri does funding formula, you know, it's a lot more difficult for us to have education savings accounts, which is why we have the tax credit the way we do it. If we had backpack funding like Arizona, which is something we need, where money follows the students and, and doesn't fund just the system, it funds the students, that's something we need and something... If we could switch to that, we could have something like this long term and not just for one year. And to David's question, do you think that private school students, homeschool students not being eligible for it is a question of administration and oversight? I think it's just I don't know exactly why they're excluded because private school students, homeschool students suffered just the same from the COVID learning loss. I mean, they weren't allowed to go out and you know, get some of these lessons, get some of the tutors. Tutors like, I'm not tutoring you during pandemic. I don't want to get sick. It's like private school students, homeschool students, stuff are just the same. I don't understand why public school students are getting favored in this. So I agree that all students in Missouri deserve this money, but I'm I'm happy at least some some of them are getting money they needed, albeit that it is very late as well. All right, and one more time, what's the deadline? So the deadline's October 23rd on Monday. All right. Uh, And finally today, David, the city of Manchester is trying to expand the empire. What's going on? Well, there's an area of unincorporated St. Louis County, uh, sort of west of 270, a little bit north of Manchester. uh, It's sort of a big unincorporated pocket. Several thousand people live there, and the city of Manchester is trying to annex it. And it's uh, up for a vote here in November. Uh, I forget the election day in November, you know, the, the... the first Tuesday following the first Monday, so whatever that day in November is. It's really going to be an interesting vote because these these debates are, are always intriguing. And I commend Manchester for once not being a city trying to do sort of, I would call it, I guess, the Creve Core model, which is just annex commercial, small little commercial parcels after, time after time so you can increase your commercial tax base without expanding, having to expand any services to residents. So just... Uh, sort of a very selective annexation model. Manchester is actually trying to add people and good for them for it. And it's really just the debate. If you're one of the couple thousand people in this unincorporated pocket, do you think that the city services provided by Manchester will be superior to the city services you currently, I'm sorry, the government services you currently receive from St. Louis County because you're unincorporated. And if you do, do you think the services will be superior enough to justify 
the higher taxes you'll now pay because you're within the city of Manchester. Uh, there'll be like, for example, in Manchester, property taxes and, and perhaps additional sales taxes, things like that. And I don't think anybody is suggesting that the increase in taxes will be particularly large, but it is re- but it will be there. So that's just the debate people have. And and it's interesting because St. Louis County has sort of an astonishingly high percent of the county that lives in unincorporated areas. About 300,000 people, which would be, I think it would be the second largest city in the state of Missouri if unincorporated St. Louis County were a, were a city. Um, probably third. So I guess Springfield's bigger. I, I should know that at the top of my head, but around there. So a lot of people live in unincorporated St. Louis County. Compare this to Jackson County, which really only has about fifteen to 20,000 people in, their unincor- in that whole unincorporated population of uh, – in that whole county population of 700,000. You have – Jackson County is the least unincorporated or better said the most incorporated county in the state. And St. Louis County is sort of at the other extreme, at least by population. And there's been people over time who've advocated, elected officials and others, that St. Louis County be 100% incorporated and it all be various cities and the county does county things and all the cities do city things. I've always disagreed vehemently with that. There's plenty of parts of St. Louis County where the county is able to provide local services just fine and the people are very happy with it. Uh, it remains to be seen, though, whether the people in this part of sort of near West St. Louis County, near Manchester, if they agree with that or not. And I'm just, I'm really interested in this this vote. There's a public forum on it uh, tomorrow, Thursday, at a 4 o'clock out at Queenie Park, and I'm going to go just to listen in and learn. And it seems like just from an, an informal accounting, just from doing the show over the last year, that consolidations, annexations, whether it's fire districts or municipalities, St. Louis County, uh, a pretty divided up, relatively divided up, um, area. Do you think that there's some real momentum around consolidation in the area? I hope. I hope not in this way. This might be a good a good example of it. I, again, I like that Manchester is actually trying to take people and not trying to pick off uh, high tax paying commercial properties and leaving people aside. I don't think there's going to be much momentum for it in South County. That's sort of where the majority of the unincorporated population is. They've tried huge incorporation efforts in the past and they've failed, uh, except for a few small ones here and there. And I don't, I don't see any further effort of that coming. If, of course, in St. Louis County, it's harder to do this than in the rest of Missouri. There's a whole additional process. In St. Charles County, for example, you see developments like Newtown. It's, it's easier for them to do development and reach out and have the city of St. Charles sort of annex the land and expand out there. It's just an easier process. And I don't, necess- I don't think it's a better process at all. I don't think it should be easy for municipalities to form or, or annex land. I think it should be, I think it should be, I think it should be statewide like it is in St. Louis County. It should be tougher to do that in the, the rest of the state. Not to say impossible, just harder. All right, and wrapping up, uh, Elias, what's one thing you're going to be keeping tabs on over the next week? Well, I'm still working my way through the um, state's budget request from each of the executive departments, but what I've been finding so far as I've made it through a few of the many thousands of pages is that a few of the departments, one specifically that's on my mind is the Department of Social Services, has been trying to uh, basically make permanent some of the temporary federal programs that have been funded you know, 100% by the federal government since uh, with COVID relief funds. Those funds are starting to dry up this year. 
And so it's a question of whether Missouri's ever going to get back to the size it was, uh, you know, pre COVID or if, you know, we're going to be making these things permanent and expanding government and the size of, you know, the budget in years to come. And I was discouraged to see that. So now I need to go look through the rest of the um, budgets and hopefully uh, next time I'll have uh, more, more updates on the topic. Avery. So Normandy schools collaborative and Riverview gardens are now back under local control. And I'm just interested to monitor the situation and see if parents can get a bigger say in their education. David? Well, it's mid-October of a a reassessment year, so people's property tax bills are going to be hitting really starting any day now around the state, and it's going to be interesting to hear the reactions to to when assessments plus tax rates, and now it's where the the rubber hits the road and people are going to get their bills here starting shortly, and I'm looking forward to the reaction, especially in Kansas City, where the tax with with the mess of Jackson County reassessment combined with the exemption from the school district and rolling back its rates, I would expect you'll see a, a lot of very angry taxpayers in, in Kansas City. All right. As always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Elias, David, Avery, thank you very much. Thank you.